ridiculous. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Round the Course Squash Podcast. We were on vacation, or we, were we? <laughs> Chris, Zachary, Stuart Crawford, how are you doing, fellas? Didn't feel like a vacation, that's for sure. Well, you had seven months last year, so you're all right. That's true. It's about time I actually worked for a change, but tried to make up for it this summer. Yeah. I've been buzzing since we scheduled this a uh, couple days ago. It's been been close to two months. It's the longest um, vacation from each other we've had in quite some time. Don't yeah. forget the episode that didn't actually make it to air. <laughs> That's true. That was that was the start of our... I, it's hard to say vacation, I think. I wrote down in my notes, do you think we could probably coach a 1,000 kids between the three of us? Probably close. Yes. During summer camp season. So, I would it's, hard say to so. Say, it's hard to say it was a podcasting. It was a podcasting vacation, not a... Not a coaching vacation. Would that be a thousand different students? Or? No, I think a thousand. I think yeah. a thousand campers. Okay, yeah, a thousand campers <laughs> in the three of us. So quite possible. Uh, but yeah, so World Series or um, World, sorry, World Championship preview. We recorded a great episode, maybe the best ever. Who knows? And I did, just, uh, just, just actually quickly, <laughs> yours truly call Ali Farag for the win on baby power. Yeah, yeah. I think I did as well. You no, did oh, no, you didn't. You no, were yeah, Mr. No you, no, you both did. Yeah, I'm I, pretty sure I, I did as well. I called, really? I called Sherbaggy, and then I was so I was so excited because he was up one loss seven seven one, which we'll get into. And I was like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm like, I'm so mad. This episode is not gonna air. My call is so good, and then <laughs> <laughs> we know how that ended. And I obviously called Shabini as well. So yeah, of course. I was two for two. Yeah. But yeah. never made it to air. Arthur's computer got hacked or too much porn, one of the two. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Actually the same thing came up the other day. Like this almost like official page comes up and you know, the latest Lenovo software. I didn't fall for that twice. <laughs> Only uh, once. Only so once. There is a missing episode out there somewhere. Some yeah. Russian hacker has probably got it. Just wondering what to do with it. Exclusive. Yeah. He's Maybe it'll do be a, like a searching yeah. for Sugar Man. Put it on tape and yeah. release it. Yeah, it'll come out in like twenty-five years. Yeah. Maybe like the Wu Tang album. It'll sell for you know hundred million dollars. Yeah. I agree, Chris. Definitely our not just our best episode. Probably the best <laughs> podcast of all time in any genre. It yeah. could be. Just a shame it's never going to be heard. No. Yeah. I don't know. We didn't even listen to it. No. But you have a feeling when the recording finishes that that was that was something special. A bit like how Freddie Mercury felt after he recorded Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> it's like, oh wow! <laughs> and I did the opera. Here we go. <laughs> Yeah. And then we return with this drivel, just talking nonsense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. But hey, we talk about some squash. Yeah, that could also come across as nonsense to most. But anyways, <laughs> so where do we start? Uh, the World Open, British Open, Manchester Open in, in the middle. The world number ones in the men's side go tit for tat as they bounced as the exchange between Farag and Mohamed El Shabagi. Uh, Shabini on the women's side showing her. Class. class is the word pure class yeah she she's a very good squash player i think by far the most dominant player on tour right now i mean that's not a hot take but the guys no. the, the men are definitely seem to be trading a little bit um and no one's able to handle sherbini right now yeah after the worlds i made a note uh sort of forgot about i'm looking at it here about when she has to enter the debate about joining players like Nicole, maybe Sarah Fitzgerald in there. Helen Mackay is a tricky one because, well, we've talked about the fact that there's not really any footage to compare her to, but obviously her record speaks for itself. But at what point does Shabini have to go into that conversation? And I think it's getting pretty close. She's now got five worlds. She's only 25 years old. Just won her third British Open title as well, so... Well, I would, yeah. I would already have her, 
like up there with Sarah Fitzgerald. I mean, matching her for five world championships and she's got a, at least, I mean, if she's motivated, she's got five to eight years left to go and how many more titles she can win is, yeah, and it's hard to, <clears throat> excuse me. But also, I think Noran Goar is going to pose a challenge. I think uh, she's closing the gap or she's certainly raising her level. Sherbini is kind of stretching her to improve, to get better. Like her techniques changed a little bit. You can see in that forehand side in particular. She's got way more options um, and she doesn't make as many random mistakes as she used to do. Um, I know, I think the commentators might have mentioned as well, she's been working with Rod Martin recently and you can tell on that forehand side. So one thing about Gohar's grip is she holds the racket on the backhand side and her second knuckle goes over the edge of the racket. So it's very open. You get a, like the benefits to that on the left wall are, are huge. But sometimes in the old days, if you look at some of the older footage of her, the stuff on the right wall, randomly, if the ball was whipped quickly across her body onto the forehand side, her racket would be quite close. And for somebody at that level would make random mistakes. But now she's kind of, she opened up the racket face. She's laying it off. Yeah, I think she's doing a lot of damage on that side. I think the only thing that let her down a bit, you know, she was holding the ball quite well in that front right corner sometimes, but then almost always going cross-court. I think once she becomes more confident playing a, a straight ball uh, from that position, I think, uh, you know, it'll just add another layer to her game. Also counter-dropping. She takes it in quite well on the volley drop and the, yeah. around the mid-court, but when you get her stretched at the front, she really struggles to shorten her swing and just yeah. sort of feather it in. Um, but I agree, she's she's definitely the second best player at the moment. She's started to show a bit more consistency, which has probably been an issue for her. She's had good results going back like five years when I think she made her first British Open final and I think she might have won, was it Hong Kong? Or she won a big tournament quite early, I think. Um, but she's never really showed the level of consistency she's showing at the moment. Um, even just beating Hanya pretty well. It was a long match, but it was fairly comfortable um, in the semi-finals of the British. Hanya, Hanya and Amanda seem like they're clearly the third and fourth best player at the moment on form. So to beat either of them in three is, is a sign that you're probably the second best player at the moment. Which isn't bad. Yeah. It's an interesting matchup, the, the Hanya one, because Hanya likes to sort of try and step forward and obviously make the rallies a little bit physical by extending them and taking them all early. But I feel like she struggles to do that against Gohar because Gohar just hits with such pace that it's hard for her to step forward and sort of dominate the middle of the court. She just gets pushed back by the pace. I also think as well with Hanya, how she hits the ball, it doesn't have quite as much spin on it. So it sits up just a little bit more. Like even in the back corners where when you see with Gohar, like, you know, it is, I mean, it's ferocious, the pace, but there's a, there's a lot of cut on it. So she gets her lines quite good. I mean, you can see the ball is just like dipping into the corners a little bit more, whereas Hanya's, it's not to say that it's, it's just not, I don't think it's just as good. I think it just sits up just a little bit more. So she doesn't maybe get as many opportunities against someone like Gohar. And Gohar's movement is also a bit, an area of her game that's improved a lot, especially into the front corners. So someone like Hanya can sort of drag her in and stretch her in the front and then open up space that way because she's getting on it a little bit earlier. Um, she also, it was noticeable um, when she plays in really warm conditions, the ball just gets so hot that it's so hard to expose anything in her game. And then the ball sits up and she can hit down on it consistently. And, she, and the ball goes into the front, it's bouncing above the height of the 10. And again, she can really, she's lethal. Um, Shubini managed to expose it towards the end, actually, just as the ball sort of softened and got a bit dead. The fifth game in the final at the British Open, Shubini just fired everything into the front as soon as she could. And then, but there was also these, there was also a ton of shots where she was just hitting any space, like almost with 100% accuracy. And that's, I think that's the difference between her and, Hania and Gohar um, and everyone else is just like she would hit that short two bounce cross court kill and it would die right into the neck and like it was just like you know if you didn't if you didn't take the perfect first step it was gone anytime 
she needed to kill the ball in the backcourt, whether it was from the front or the middle, the ball died into the back neck. It's just, and then, and then she was also hitting those, you know, feathering the drop into the neck, doing, doing everything. And I mean, yeah, she, she just can beat you every single way, right? Where I think Gohar, Hania are still, you know, maybe they have five weapons and she's got 25. It's kind of the way I see it. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair point. As well as that, like with, there's so much variation in the tempo of her, of her shots with Shabini, whereas with those two, it's, it's pretty much always ferocious. It's just, yeah, it's not just bish, bosh, bash, but there's a lot of it. Like, that's a huge... Whereas with Shabini, quite often, she's holding the ball, she's delaying her swing, or she'll, you know, start with a drop shot and just accelerate the racket head at the final moment and hit it deep, and so many options. But it's, yeah, like like we were saying, it's going to... Those those other players are going to be watching that, and they're going to be they're going to be looking to do it right, and they're going to try and narrow that gap and add those things because it doesn't matter if Sherbini does it well, the things that she does are going to hurt her too, right? So if other people can kind of add a few of those layers, it's going to going to close that gap a little bit. It was interesting to hear Sherbini talk about in one of her post match interviews about you know having trust in her body. Um, and then seeing her with strapping, and I know the World Open not <clears throat> one just gone, but the, was it the one previous where she had she went through the whole week with a strap on her leg? Yeah, uh, she, she's done it before. She's also sort of come back for tournaments when she hasn't played for a few months or missed a few, and she seems to be able to deal with all that. Uh, she's sort of so quietly spoken, but she's obviously incredibly mentally strong to be able to do things like that. I think she said after this, uh, yeah, it was just after the um, British win, she said after, I think they asked her what she was going to do in preparation for Egypt. And she's like, honestly, uh, just take some time to kind of wind down and then get mentally prepared. She's like, I work a lot more on my mental uh, than my, than my physical. (laughs) So it's just like, must be nice. (laughs) (laughs) Any other talking points from the women's side, either the world or the British? Uh, I think obviously Amanda making semis at, at the Worlds in Chicago, that was that was huge, and backing that up with another semi-final appearance at the British. Only to, I mean, she came across Shabini both times. She beat Hanya in the quarters. I mean, one of the things that stood out in the women's side was just how few upsets there were. I think. The only match from the quarters onwards that didn't go to like all the top eight seeds made the quarters, and then the top four, apart from Amanda beating Hanya, which was number five beating number four, uh, the rest of the top four made the semis, and then the top two made the final, and then the number one seed won it. So, just supports my theory. If you're predicting an outcome, just <laughs> pick the number one seed. That the seed won for a reason. Um, it's fair. But, but yeah, I think that's. It's a big win for, for Amanda, uh, partly because it's it's more consistency. She's she's always been consistent making quarters, but she's now very consistent making semis. Um, and I have this theory about she obviously enjoys playing in the US and thrives off the energy of the crowd, but I've sometimes felt like it can also add a lot of pressure and as much as she comes across as very confident in her game, deep down, I was never sure she really believed she belonged at that level against the, the top two or three players, like when she would play a Raneem or a El Tayyab. Um, it seemed like there was just a little bit of doubt that obviously wouldn't exist when she was playing the lower-ranked players, but it seems like she's really started to believe that she belongs at that level when she steps on court now with a lot more confidence in her game. Uh, and then she's able to use that confidence to then feed off the crowd and not put that pressure on her that she seemed to struggle a little bit with. Yeah, the extra adrenaline that gets pumping, it like it helps you for a little while, maybe physically, right? But like it doesn't necessarily put you in like that perfect mental state. Um, you might be a little too wound up, um, even if it's even if the crowd's on your side. So maybe you're has- distracted a little bit as well, right? People get easier access to you. You're probably more inclined to 
respond to messages or tweets or just to... She has performed well in the US, so it's not like she can't deal with it, but I would say she never performed consistently well in the US. But I think now that she seems like she's got belief in her game, belief in her physical conditioning, uh, mentioned this before, but I've really noticed that she's much more comfortable playing longer rallies and she's not trying to force the issue and shorten points just to, like she used to always joke herself about even a five setter for her was usually like 40, 45 minutes, but now she can have three, three set matches that are that sort of time uh, and it doesn't seem to phase her. So the, so the Sherbini fan club is good and well to wrap up the women's side. I don't even need to say anything more. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I just, I think the difference between her and the rest is that you guys touched on it, but there's so much she can win in so many different ways. She can, she could probably beat most of the girls playing length only. She could win playing a short game. She could win playing straight only. She could win playing cross. Like she has more options. And you saw that against uh, Gohar in the final of the British there, where she probably wasn't her best. She made a lot of errors, which obviously she wouldn't have wanted to do. But as soon as she got that sniff, I actually thought she was going to lose in four when she was, I think she was seven, six down in the, in the fourth. Yeah. And it just, it just felt like Gohar was playing slightly better on the day, had, had the momentum and just was a little bit hungrier. But Shabini just got a few cheap points at the, towards the end of that game. And then just as soon as she spotted that the ball was getting deader and Again, once the ball gets cooler, it's a lot easier to keep firing those balls into the front. And that's what she did at the start of the start of the fifth. She absolutely yeah. ran away with it. Short, I think, quick rallies, yeah. Yeah. And I think you noticed how um how hard mentally for the other players it is to beat her now. Because they just know like they know how how tough of a task it is because I as soon as like Gohar definitely had the edge. All of us watching were like, oh, this, you know, this is looking good for her. But then as soon as Sherbini started making that, making that kind of run and getting a little bit ahead, it almost seemed like even Gohar was like, oh, it's over. It's like crazy, <laughs> right? Where Sherbini on the flip side was like, she could have done that um, down and out and looking exhausted. And then it's just like, yeah, she just, it, she's, a tall, tall task. Uh, I must I just point out as well, like uh, Goar was, you know, she won the first game, but she was also 10-7 up in the second. So it could have very, I mean, yeah. I'd say there's yeah. a few sleepless nights there. Although Shabini led most of the first game and then Goar sneaked it at the end and then the, the second game was a bit of a reversal. Yeah. Um, just, uh, I mean, a couple of stats. This is... Re- Relating to the world rather than the British, but she only dropped one match. Eh, sorry, one game in her six matches, and apart from the final, which was quite a uh, longish match, she only had one game over or one match over thirty minutes, which was against Olivia Victor, which was still only thirty-four minutes. So she just carves her way through the draws, and I think she was similar at the at the British. I think um, the only really extended match she had was. Um, I know, actually, she, she had a longish match against uh, Amanda in the semis and also against SG in the in the quarters. But her early matches, again, it's like 20, 25 minutes. You got you to gotta save those stats for your fan club newsletter paid subscriptions, man. <laughs> You're giving people free content here. Yeah. <laughs> you got to mail Stuart your, your single dollar bill in an envelope. And he'll send you a, a newsletter each month. <laughs> like the Rolling Stones. Uh, speaking of the Rolling Stones, yeah, the drummer passed away today. Or maybe oh. yesterday. I saw that, actually. Yeah. Tough one. So what about the men? Any any hot takes on the, the men's front, Chris? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's... Ali, Ali clearly looked like after getting that um, world championship, and we can talk about that a little more. But you know, 
just thinking back since we started this podcast, I remember I think the first three or four times I didn't pick Allie <laughs> and he won like the first few tournaments. And then it's been a little bit, but he's he's been the most consistent performer since um, squash started back up, I'd say. But there just, there definitely is, you know, with Assault making a run, um, Paul Cole obviously setting his foot in there now. And then Sherbaggy always and and Moman. Um, there's a good group. And then the return of the Puma in Manchester kind of ran through that draw, dropping only a game in his first round. So yeah, I mean, I think it, it's 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 great. I still have to think Allie's the guy to beat going forward. If I have a take, I guess that would be it. But um there's a lot of competition. There is. There is. <laughs> My my biggest take is uh, Shibagi's performances over not just the British but also the World's final and then his his match against Asal in the World Tour finals final and that's three matches now in a row. I know he's played other matches and he's had some good wins in those events, but in each of those events when he's lost, he's just not looked himself. Mostly physical, but he. He played a sal in the final of the World Tour Finals. He won a really long, I think, 30, 30 odd minute first game. And you sort of expected him to push on and then turn the screw against the sal. And that longer first game would be more beneficial to Shibagi normally, but that wasn't the case. And then final of the worlds, he was one love, seven love up. I kept saying seven one, but it was actually seven love. Was it? I could I think I might have tuned in at seven one. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the news reports were saying, oh, he was up 7-1, but I went back again and checked because I thought it was 7-love. I did I did was. too, to be honest. Um, but again, he just sort of dropped off physically, which is very unlike him. And then again against Paul, uh, I know he had a couple of big matches to get through to the semis, uh, beat uh, making in the first round, which that's a brutal draw for both of them to draw each <laughs> yeah. other first round. Um but then against Paul, again, he just didn't look himself. Even taking out the score, I know he'll be disappointed to lose to Love, but losing in 30, 30, was it 31 minutes, something like that, uh, yeah. it's just not like him at all. So I'm wondering if there's something up that he's not disclosed. Um, I've, I just can't remember a spell where I've seen him lose three matches like that in such a short space of time. It's probably the first time he's ever... You've looked at him, he's, it's almost like he's cracked a little bit, like physically, not sure it's not mental, but the I felt in the semi-final at the Worlds against Paul, and granted he won the first two games very comfortably, I don't think Paul, maybe his intensity was, was quite there in the first two games, but there was a couple of pretty hard rallies towards the end of the third, and Paul was unlucky not to win that game. And I would have been interested to see how that would have panned out had there been a fourth game. I'm not saying or Paul would have won it, but he'd looked, there were signs there to say, and I suppose when you look at the match against Asal in the in the week previous, where you know, physically he looked to be breathing a little heavy. And one of the things that, you know, he would have been famous for was for having like a second wind, a third wind, a fourth wind, and just to always like keep pushing. Like he might have a little dip in energy, but then he'd have, you know, he'd, he'd come up again. And I didn't, I haven't seen that. Uh, as of late um, and I think you know the match against Ali there was a rally I think it was a 4-7 in the second game and it was brutal and I can't remember it might have finished in the last but I remember thinking at the time this could that could be a turning point too there just just in terms of how physical it was and you could see Ali's plan at 7-love I don't think he was necessarily thinking about winning the game but just trying to put some trying to get some of his own momentum to go in for a third game and to try to extend the rallies and get a few more, hit a few more balls, maybe try take a little bit of sting out of Shiraghi. And as he won the game, it was a bonus, but it, it definitely looked like that was his, his goal there and it seemed to work. Yeah, and I mean, I think, I, I just think the way, I, I don't know if you guys watched many of the early rounds of the British, I caught the, I didn't see a ton but I caught the Paul Colmez and Hesham match. And I thought Paul, Paul's timing looked off. I thought obviously some of that stems from Mazin's game being so unorthodox and so impossible to read. 
but I just thought even like there were times it looked like Paul was crowding the ball and his like timing on his shots was off and he was quite loose. And I was like, Oh, he's got, you know, I, I, I didn't think he wouldn't get through that match. Um, but I didn't think he was going to go on to potentially beat like Diego. And then his, it was just, I think a, a bad day for him, but showing how he can kind of, you know, the games against Diego, 13-11, 11-9, 13-11, and then the way Muhammad and Ali both physically just couldn't kind of step up, it shows his physical is kind of in the lead right now, his physical side of the game. But also, like, mentally, I think he's I think he's in a really, really good place. He's just so rock solid, um, so focused. He doesn't have all the same options as, as a lot of these other guys. Like he, you know, I think he goes in and out some days on when, like how, how severe he can be in, in his attacking game, but like, he just knows what he has on that day. And he's so good about keeping it within his, within his spectrum. Like he's not trying to do anything super risky and he's just willing to willing to um, win that way which is like insane levels of focus, right? To not want to try and do something a little bit uh, just at the edge of your comfort zone. I think as well to have lost a lot of big matches against those guys as of late and to still come back with the belief and to make those little changes or to learn from those experiences and use them to his advantage. Really huge testament to what a goddamn guy. Yeah. I think the Mazin match helped him a lot because I didn't see the full match, but I watched the highlights and I also read his quote and it seemed like he felt like he was just pushing the ball around and it was almost like he was expected to win. He knew he should win, but there was a lot of a lot of edginess around his performance and he didn't want to commit to going short and making errors. So he was just kind of pushing the ball around, which is not it's not easy to beat someone like Mazin, Mazin if you're not actually getting through the ball. And I, I think being so close to going out almost just relaxed him and he was like, well, can't be that much worse than yesterday and yet I still did enough to get through. So he goes in against Diego, who was in some ways the foreign player, having won Manchester and he just hit through the ball so much more positively and you saw that and particularly in the semis and especially in the final, just the sort of conviction in his driving. He's not taking huge risks, but the severity of his length and the way he's cutting through the ball and making it dive with pace, that's not an easy thing to do on a uh, hot bouncy court. Um, but he seemed like he was, especially in the final, once he lost that first game, he just sort of let his arm go. And he, some guys let their arm go and they start firing it into the front, but he was just hitting through his drive so positively. Yeah, I was going to say, as soon as, as soon as he got a inkling that Ali was was starting to fade physically he turned up the tempo of his hitting and he was getting through it so fast but he was also hitting good good lines and good length and it it was good to see that because obviously Ali can play the slow game very well as well like probably until he's you know he could probably play that for hours so it's just good to see Paul kind of like try and turn the screws up on him and uh and he did it like really, really well. I think oh, Ali, tough to, sorry, just last, I think with that as well, it looked like Ali found him a little bit tougher to read at times at the front of the court, which, you know, stopped Ali's movement a little bit, a broke lot, his rhythm. A lot of guessing though, right? Yeah, I noticed yeah. that as well. Which, yeah. it, you know. But I, I just felt like Paul was putting more pressure on players at the back of the court. He, He's a guy for someone who's so physical. He doesn't always take the ball super early. Like he doesn't throw himself. He, he volleys a reasonable amount, but he's not. He's not forcing it. He likes to be balanced. He likes to be stable. He likes to hit the ball with control and accuracy. And sometimes he's willing to sacrifice a little bit of like risk in terms of forcing the tempo just to make sure he hits his targets, knowing full well that if he does that consistently, then the rallies are going to be extended anyway. So he doesn't need to force the pace. He just needs to make people do a lot of work by making them move in and out of the corners as much as possible. Um, and sometimes against 
a player of Ali's quality, that's not enough to really rush him and get him out of position. But like I say, I just I thought the quality of his shots into the, the backcourt particularly, but then that then opened up the front court and forced Ali to go short or gave him a chance to take it in on the volley. But particularly, like you say, like when Ali went short, he was just on it, a little delay and hold, and then bang. Yeah. Um, do, so. do you think there, there could be an element, Stuart, where he might sometimes struggle with to find that sweet spot of being relaxed, but not too relaxed where he, he begins to tether towards being passive? Yeah, very much so. I think that's where you see that push. I've noticed in his comments, he talks about how he's hitting through the ball a lot. And generally when he's happy with his game, it's when he's hitting through the ball positively. And when he's disappointed with his game, it's it's either one of two things. It's when he's made more errors than he wants or when he's just pushed the ball around too much. Yeah, yeah against Mazin, he would kind of have front position, uh, you know, Mezzin or any opponent hits a loose cross court to his forehand. And there were times where he was just blocking the ball in, you know, two or three feet above the 10. And there are days where he's kind of like carving that in much sharper. And right. And so there's, there's a balance, like we're saying, like he can't be trying to carve too many balls in if he's like fully extended, you know, off the tee, but when he does get those openings uh, and he's converting them into, you know, really um, pressuring kind of short balls, he's, yeah, he's like way deadlier. And um, it, it just shows like there's so much room for him to, to keep getting, keep getting better, which, you know, is uh, I think there was an article that came out that said this, this will be a springboard for him. And it does feel like, yeah, it does feel like he's always going to be in the conversation. I think th- he's just the tidying up, tidying up those days, right? Like uh, against the Mazin, you can't obviously can't have a day like that against a probably a Farag, a Moment, uh, a Sherbaggies, that kind of thing. He doesn't tend to have those days against them because I think he he doesn't feel the same pressure against them, so he's able to let his arm go a little bit more. Um, but I think. Was it, I think it was Jeff Hunt that said that he, he sees this as a as the start of something for Paul and he can use this to go on and win more titles, which I certainly think he's capable of. Um, it's interesting. I've, I've coached players with a similar mentality where they feel like they're fitter than most of their opponents. And I've, talked about, I've had conversations where we talked about just the mindset of not wanting to make errors and you do become a bit passive because in your head, when you're fitter than your opponent, the worst thing you can possibly do is give them a point. And I think sometimes when Paul plays some of the lower ranked guys, especially the, the dangerous guys that can hit winners, that's kind of how he feels. He's like, well, I just want to get to like 60, 70 minutes and then I know the match is going to be in my favour. But sometimes he forgets to make them do as much work as he can in that 60 or 70 minutes. That's it. Yeah, you can be as fit as you like. If you're doing three times the amount of work as the other fella you know, you're, you're in big trouble. <laughs> yeah. I think it's also worth noting that um, it's obviously his first major title uh, or first platinum event of all, any kind. But um, I think he spent, he, he skipped Manchester deliberately to go and spend a week with Rob Owen. So um, I think there's probably something in that, that he hadn't seen Rob Owen in person, I believe for like a year and a half because of travel restrictions getting in and out of the UK. Um, so he goes and spends a week with Rob and then goes and wins the tournament so pretty good uh, endorsement of <laughs> Rob's coaching credentials you go to see Rob every every week before a major event <laughs> yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure it's worth it with a two week quarantine he's good but I don't know if he's that good hopefully those quarantines get lifted soon enough yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but I did find that to be quite a uh, Notable, not a coincidence, probably. Um, any other things that stood out? Um, I had a couple. One was uh, Marwan's performances across both events. He obviously, earlier in the year, he won it was black ball, right? Black ball, yeah. Yeah, he won black ball. And then after that, he was pretty vocal about saying that his target for the remainder of the year was to, to win the Worlds and the British and get to number one in the world. And... Uh, 
I think it's fair to say that he'll be disappointed with his, his performances in both events. Yeah, I would say, and to Man like his performance in Manchester, I mean, by his standards, probably wasn't, he wouldn't have been overly happy with that either. Yeah. They lost um, lost to Tarek in four in the quarters um, at the, the Worlds. Um, and even just getting to that point, he, he went to five with Mohamed El Shabini in the second round and then dropped again to Marsh. And I think one thing we've seen when Marwan's playing well, he's very clinical at getting through those early rounds. Yeah. His game with, with Tarek again by his standards, uh, he just made a lot of mistakes. It was weird. Yeah, I think just from you know we talked about it with Muhammad. We talked about it. Ali Ali looked pretty fried, which you don't see very often. It's been a it's been a weird and condensed season with all these you know extra travel days and extra quarantine days. And I mean, I wouldn't doubt if some of this stuff is just like you know call it fatigue call it covid fatigue um there's just a lot it it does seem like a lot and i think you know it probably isn't uh random isolated incidents i think these guys are probably starting to feel the effects of this kind of like weird season Uh, i think that's pretty fair actually the amount of time you have to spend on your own in those hotel rooms as well yeah just gotta be bonkers Yeah, got to be a bit exhausting. And especially that period between the Worlds and the uh, British for the Egyptian players because uh, I think the majority of them couldn't go home because the quarantine restrictions for getting back into the UK if you're coming from Egypt are pretty severe. So most of them had to play the Worlds in Chicago and then I think a lot of them stayed around in the US for two or three weeks. Then obviously either travelled over if they were playing Manchester or waited a little bit longer if they were just playing the British. Uh, I know Ali Farag, I think, went to Germany and trained at Paderborn. Um, so, yeah, I don't think many of them got home. Which, yeah, yeah, that's tough. Six, it's tough, six yeah. seven weeks. And uh, Ali Farag also came over early for, um, we talked about this in our, our now non-existent preview episode. But Best episode ever. <laughs> he, he actually came to the U.S., two or maybe even three weeks before the world started, just so that uh, Noor, who was heavily pregnant, could give birth and be around. Or he could be around and not have to leave her on her own when he travelled over. So I think... See, that, that's was, phenomenal when you, when you think about it. Like to have, and, and then to have... I mean, I, I don't know if Noor and his family travelled to, Man- to... Not Manchester, a whole rather. I don't think so. And, I don't and think then, so either. And like to just be a dad and to not allow yourself a huge amount of time to like just embrace that and enjoy it. I think that takes an unbelievable level of, well, I mean, it depends on the personality, I guess. I mean, you can compartmentalize and you can just one day at a time. But that, that's tough. That's got to take its toll on you. Which one makes the feet all more impressive. Sorry. One of the things that stood out in the early rounds of the Worlds was how focused and up for it Shabagi and Farag looked right from the start yeah like Farag's usually pretty ruthless in the early rounds but he was on it from the first from the first match and Shabagi who isn't always quite as ruthless I mean he can be but recent years he's maybe sort of cruised through those early rounds and conserved energy by not maybe playing 100% uh, he was I mean his early rounds Got the draw here. I think he was. Yeah, Joel Macon was three zero. Was one of them. Yeah, he was. Uh, yep, he won in three twenty five minutes. Patrick Rooney thirty three minutes. And then he beat Joel Macon in fifty one minutes, which is about as quick as you can beat Joel, I would say, because he. I mean, the game scores were four seven and seven, so that's pretty convincing. Then he beat the Suki in thirty two minutes. So he made the semis as efficiently as he's done in a long time. And then again, right, first two games against Paul, 11-5, 11-3, and again, pretty short games. And Then Paul got into it a little bit more and it started to extend, but he was really up for that tournament. Um, and again, same with Farag, um, sort of cruised through the early rounds and then... Ding-dong with the semi. 
Yeah, that was probably the best match of of these three events, I would say. That match between Ali and Tarek, I thought, was one of the best matches I'd seen in a long time. So good. I, I, yeah. Tarek, you know, I, I love watching Tarek play. I think I mentioned this in a text to you boys. But he's a, he's a hard man to like support because you always feel like like his sweet spot is so fine of, of <laughs> yeah. when he plays well that it can go south. I mean, at that level, it can go south pretty quick where he just like makes too many mistakes or he does too much work. But when he plays well like that, he, I just, yeah, love watching him but play. Also, but also like his uh, his sweet spot for where he needs to be mentally like he can go off the rails so quickly, like a call, a couple <laughs> nudges with the hip from the opponent. And it's kind of like, come on, man, like you, you got to be used to this now. Um, yeah. But he he's so unique in what he does, like his back to front, his back to front pattern and just kind of relentless attack to the front is uh, it's so cool. <laughs> it's so cool. Yeah. The only with really like the only guy who who can do that the way he does it was funny Ali was uh, cramping in his hand at the end of the match like the last shot that he played yeah. did, you ever, did you ever experience that I had cramp once but it was in my calf not in my hand I remember after after a tournament uh one time I was flying back and like my I was trying to eat pizza and like I couldn't hold the slice because my hand was cramping and I uh as like dropping pizza all over myself but lovely I don't think during a match I played a tournament in Ipswich years ago and I used to live there so I kind of came back it was I think it was the week after the Europeans or the week before and you know the the nature of the tournament like just seeing all these a lot of friends and people I was close to the night before the final I had a couple of beers not many, just like two or three shandies. So a bit of lemonade in there just to make me feel better. Anyways, the next day I'm playing the <laughs> final. Struggled a little bit, uh, but I got to maybe 10-6 or 10-7 match ball. And at this point, like my whole body was twitching. It was it was a long <laughs> match. I was playing um, Chris Fuller, I think. Yeah, Chris Fuller, English guy. And, uh, anyways, it was, it was a pretty long game and I was cramping everywhere. And on the last shot I hit was a forehand drop from the middle of the court. And it was a pretty average shot, but it was very tight. <laughs> and after I hit it, uh, I fell on the ground. My hamstrings, my calves, and my and my hand started cramping. <laughs> and he hit the ball back on himself, caught it. <laughs> he looked around, and I'm on the ground. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. <laughs> but I, I couldn't shake his hand after the game. I had to give him an elbow bump before <laughs> the elbow bump was even a thing. Very funny. I was in bits for days after that. The good, old, the good old days. Oh, they were the, they were the best days. Oh man! Just I don't know if you noticed Ali and Ali and Tarek after that match in the semis both made a major point of like expressing their admiration for each other, and it was almost like a mutual appreciation uh, talk from both of them. I don't know about you, but I I viewed that as a little bit of a. Not necessarily dig, but I know Shabagi's been very vocal in his support of Asal. And we've talked about how they're two players that sort of approach the game from a, well, you step on court, you do whatever you can to win, you shake hands at the end of it and everything's forgotten. Whereas I think Ali and Tarek both view things a little bit differently, which which is more along the lines of you play fair, you play clean, you call your balls down, all that. And I view viewed them sort of expressing how much they enjoy playing each other as a sort of little dig at the other two and almost like <laughs> you're such you a get, little shit store, huh? <laughs> yeah. You guys can play the game your way and we'll we'll play the game our way. And it's like it's almost like especially after the the little thing with Tarek and uh Asal on social media, Shirbagi basically came out and was like Team Asal. And then this was my in my view this was for I'd coming out for Team Tarek. Love it. Yeah, uh, a, a dark twist, huh? <laughs> Love petty wars. Keep them coming. But, but then, ironically, Shubagi and Farag, when they played in the final, also had a lot of mutual respect for each other after the match and their quotes and comments. And it, even just the way the match was played, you can see there's a lot of respect there. Um, yeah. I, I would more see it like that, that they just stretch each other like on a weekly, monthly, yearly, seasonally basis to become better versions of themselves that 
that's where the respect comes from as opposed to a, a petty war against you know Assad is good or not good <laughs> <laughs> yeah probably not but but that sells that I tell you if that was a headline everyone would click on it but I do think I do think Farag wanted, wants to distance himself from Asal. And you saw that when they played, like even Asal wasn't terrible. He got worse towards the end of the match. But we've talked about this where uh, Well you, you say ter- not terrible, but you judge that by Asal's standards. Yeah. I mean he's not as bad as he's been, but but Farag was getting irritated by little minor things and then as soon as Asal senses that he just um, he's all—he's actually always been fairly respectful towards Farag, but I would say this is the first time he's decided, nah, screw it. <laughs> 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 it's time for that is over. Yeah. Oh, there were some some nice big old blocks, but anyways, he did well. I think Tarek also—I mean, we've talked a lot about Shivagi and Farag as the two top players in the world, which they rightly are um, at the moment, but. I think Tarek's been consistently top four. I think Paul has now shown that he's going to be uh, top four for a while. It's going to be hard for players to... I mean, Asal's right right at that level, but I think for me, if you want to make the semis of any major tournament from now on, you're going to have to beat one of those guys. For, is that for you? or I, I, think, that's, I think that's actually <laughs> going to be an actual fact. <laughs> Maybe right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Jeff Hunt came out yesterday and this I'd be interested to hear your take and he talked about Paul Colesing and I know you mentioned that. One of the things that he did mention, you know, that he valued titles more than the world number one status. As in, like, so for him, it was all about becoming British Open champion and world champion. Uh, I mean, it just so happened he was world number one for a very long time as well, I think 48 months in total. But what what's your take, fellas? Like, would you, do you think titles... Over world number one status or st- or world number one status over titles, and I'm going to throw one thing your way before a little curveball. If you remember the days when, uh, sorry, in the early nineties, my man, hey, sorry, uh, you remember the early days, and certainly in the nineties when in the women's tennis game you had a lot of world number ones uh, hadn't won a Grand Slam, right? and that was a sort of a big thing at the minute, or sorry, a big thing at the time. Sorry, I got distracted. What's your take? I would definitely say titles. I think being number one in the world is important at some point in your career if you want to be remembered as a great. But I think most top top players are remembered more for their titles than how many months they actually spent in number one in the world. Um, yeah, it's interesting because people like will compare world number ones and like sometimes compare their strengths of like, well, yeah, they they were world number one and they were world number one, but this person had you know, three world championships and three British championships. This person only had, you know, one world championship and maybe a couple other titles. Right. And so like, but if you could only have one, it feels like if you were to win a bunch of titles, call it five, six platinums, you're probably, you could, you could not ever get to that world. Number one, you might get stuck at two or three. Right. But yeah, it's tough. I mean, I think either way, you're in a good spot. You're like, oh yeah, I won, you know, six platinum events as a as a pro. I would on the, probably... on the flip side, if you won one, oh, I won a British Open, and I was and I was world number one. See, I I would probably narrow that down as opposed to platinums, just to the history of the sport, just British Open and World Open. Oh, I agree. Which which is hard for me because it's like, it's all the it's all the same guys. Like I get, I get the history, right. But like you win the U S open and it's the exact same field, it, not nearly the history. I get that, but it's like exact same field, exact same kind of. Um, but I know, think, but I think physical. the difference between the two is that if you look at the British open trophy, you'll see Jeff Hunt's name, you'll see, you know, Jonah Barrington, you'll see Abu Taleb, you'll see all the great, like, Pakistanis like Hashim Khan, Kamar's yeah. man. Like I'm this. not sure how relevant that is, though. To, but mean, I th- I'm a Eucharist. That it's not like the British Open or the world is a little bit different because it does have more pr- prize money and ranking points at stake. So you could argue there's a greater incentive there. But the prize money and the ranking points of the British are the same as the US Open, same at the TOC, same at 
Hong Kong, Qatar. I don't think any guys, I mean, maybe they do target the British a little bit more than those events because of the history, but I, I don't see those events as any less significant, but yet for some reason, because of the history, they're viewed that way a little bit. Like when we talk about major titles, we generally talk about worlds in British. Um, yeah, but to be fair, like I, I don't, I'm not saying that the are less insignificant, but just that extra little bit of history does bring a, a little bit of maybe it's just the romantic side of me that just yeah. you know sees and again like Heather McKay, Susan Devoy, and all those great names that have won these tournaments. Real Lance um, romance over here. Oh, listen, man, huh? My boys. Personally, I'm not picky. I'd I'd be happy to win any of them. Yeah, we know you're not a romantic. Don't worry. <laughs> True. <laughs> don't know if it's going to happen. But you never yeah, know. Straight I definitely things. think most players. Well, I think Paul will be remembered more for being British Open champion than he would if he got number one in the world, but didn't have a title like that. Yeah. And I think tennis is another good example of. No one compares how many months or weeks Federer, Nadal, or uh, Djokovic have been at number one in the world when they're when they're trying to decide who the greatest is, but they always refer to their Grand Slam titles. Uh, I think, point. like I said, being number one is important at some point in your career. Um, I mean, it wasn't important in my career. What about you, <laughs> Stu? <laughs> well, it was, it just it never happened. I was just so close. I was only 112 spots away from it. Oh, man. Well, that's closer than a lot of people. Closer than yeah. me. Seven eighties, Bummer. Oh well. Is that enough? I think we've we've talked about enough squash for now. Yeah, yeah. Cooked. It's a good bit of squash. <laughs> it's good to be back. Great Hopefully to be back. Another another two months till our next episode. Uh, listen, oh. you just gotta keep people on the edge of the seats and for the for yeah. Hopefully this one makes it out this time, eh, Arthur? No Hopefully. pop-ups. No pop-ups. No no pop-ups. Hey. Camp season's almost over. Arthur's burning the candle to the very end this week, but we're almost back in podcasting season. Oh, yeah. (laughs) All right, guys. Nice one. Well, thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, check us out on social, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Cheers.